I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop, and I'm talking Joshua Cohen about his book, The Nyahinyahus. One of the reasons I'm talking to him is that I really love this book, and I've got enormous pleasure reading it. And it isn't a, I mean, it isn't, don't feel that it's your duty to read this book, although it is. Just feel that it's a moment that you must wait until there's a moment where you really, um, I fell on the floor at one point. Um, we'll come to why I fell on the floor and what that scene is that's so remarkably funny and, and, and interesting. Uh, Josh, I wonder if we could just start. Do you, want, you don't mind if I call you Josh, do you? I, if you stop falling on the floor, you can call me Josh, sure. Okay, well, I will fall on the floor and call you Josh. Josh, um, could you tell us first, before we do anything else, um, how, where, when you met Harold Bloom? Harold Bloom. Um, I, Harold being half a century older than I am, I still kind of feel like talking about him in the, in the present tense. Uh, I uh, always had a, a better memory than me, a better memory than anyone. So I, I don't know exactly when I met him, but, uh, but I would say maybe five, six years uh, before he passed away. And I met him through his, uh, New Haven neighbors, uh, the poet, uh, Peter Cole and the translator Peter Cole and the, the translator and, 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 uh, critic Adina Hoffman. And I met, I met Harold and I met his wife, Jean Bloom that way. It was terrifying my meeting him because he was a person on whom nothing is lost. And nothing was lost. And even as his body failed, his mind was um, was with him. And he seemed to have become interested in me for for a number of reasons, probably not limited to my my books. I think he also liked the fact that I brought up uh, bagels from the city and I allowed him to cheat on his diet a little bit toward the end. Um, And. and I was just honored to to kind of be in his presence. And uh, he he wanted the the latest gossip, and I wanted I wanted everything from him. And and one of the things that he gave me was one version, or no, not one version, multiple versions of this story. So tell us the story. The story, as I tell it, is uh, uh, is that Benzion Netanyahu, who is a um, was an exiled uh, uh, scholar uh, of um, 
uh, really of, of of medieval Jewry, but but really of the of the Inquisitions, of the Iberian Inquisitions, the Spanish and Portuguese Inquisitions. He uh, uh, is not in Israel uh, because he he's sort of exiled with everyone in the circle of, uh, of of Vladimir Jabotinsky of the revisionist Zionists. He's a, a rabble rouser, a polemicist, sort of a soft terrorist for a bunch of newspapers, um, uh, very right-wing newspapers in Israel. And after uh, an incident at Hebrew University that involves a stink bomb, uh, he, he, he pretty much is persona non grata uh, in the country. And well, so- What happened the stink bomb, uh, Josh? Uh, just tell, just if you could just briefly tell us. They, um, you know, he like hated- Yeah, I mean, the, 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 he hated sort of everyone who, um, all of the elements in, in, Pal- in, in, in you know, then Palestine, uh, uh, but, you know, founders of the state who would get in bed with the British. And, um, and everyone who was involved really with Hebrew University was uh, very much uh, friendly, whether by out of, out of necessity or whether out of actual some affiliation, some, some, um, some fellow feeling with British mandate rule. And, and he was someone who wasn't going to wait around for you know the great powers of the world to give him a state, he was going to take it. And there was an evening at at Hebrew University where a, a the person at the time was was giving a lecture, uh, and it was a sort of what he would characterize as a mealy mouth kind of left wing lecture, and a uh, um, and a bomb went off in the in the audience in the auditorium, and um, and that coupled with his you know, polemics against uh, uh, various figures in 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 British um, mandate Palestine, uh, both in the government and also affiliated with Hebrew University, got him uh, uh, made him essentially unhirable. Also, he fell prey to to immigrants, let's say, you know, every year that he was at Hebrew University, you know, the cream of the faculties of the greatest you know European universities were, were refugees at that point. And uh, and if you could hire a scholar from Friedrich Wilhelm University uh, uh, to teach history for peanuts, why would you hire a guy with a local education? Right. And so he had to make his career in the States. So he made his career in the States and he kind of peddled himself. He did his doctorate in the States at a small uh, rabbinic seminary in Philadelphia that no longer exists. And then he had to pedal himself around on the circuit. And um, and when he went up to do an interview at Cornell University, um, Harold Bloom, who of course was not in the history department, was asked to kind of chaperone him around because uh, he's one of yours. And so he was a, a Jew asked to meet another Jew uh, uh, and to kind of weigh in on his hiring uh, at Cornell. And it's a story of uh, a visit from the Netanyahu's to, um, to upstate New York. Though I should say that my protagonist and narrator, Blum, Ruben Blum, has nothing to do with Harold, or if he has anything to do with Harold, he's the opposite of Harold. Let's come to Blum in a minute, but um, I just wanna, um, is it possible that this Ben Zahn and Netanyahu was a complete charlatan? Um, he was brilliant. He was brilliant is the problem with him. He was brilliant- On the Inquisition, which his whole reputation is based on. Right, uh, right, right, right. I mean, if he, what's the parlance? If he stayed in his lane, right? I mean, he was one of, you know, I, I have, a, a truly perverse sympathy for the man because he was one of those writers who thought that writing should affect the world. That he would write something and someone would either see the intelligence or the rightness of his claim and the world would adjust accordingly. So, I mean, delusional, uh, self-aggrandizing, absolutely. Charlatan, 
I'm not sure. I mean, speaking as a charlatan, I don't know. Yes, I want to. I mean, I think I recognize that he's he's what he's saying is probably wrong, you know, and he wrote a big book about it. So that strikes me as being like, it's not great. You know, it's not ideal. You know, he Mm -hmm. says that the whole purpose, one of the purposes of the Inquisition was to stop Jewish Jewish people converting and to make them go back to being Jewish rather than remaining Catholic. And although I'm not sure anybody else thinks that. But anyway, I want to get back. No, no, they they don't. They don't. Not at all. The reason why they don't is that it's wrong. And the reason why I'm raising it is that he spent his whole life working on it. Now, I'm not happy with that. I mean, whatever way you could call it, any word you like. But but, uh, anyway, but this is part of the fun in a way that this this fellow arrives at this university, which may or may not be Cornell. It's probably a smaller university. But looking for this job, which is eminently unqualified. But anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. You have a technical problem when you start, don't you? That if you try and do the Netanyahu's, and Harl Bloom, you're dealing with, you know, two sort of massive forces that have to be described in enormous detail. And you have to make Harl Bloom either larger than life or smaller. You have to do something. with And yeah. I think the decision you made was wise, which you decided to bring him down to a much more sort of shivering, nervous sort of figure. The, the You know, the, it seems the only Jewish person in the entire vicinity has been hired. And his and his and his ex expertise. He's out of Nabokov. His expertise is an area to do with the history of taxation. And he's there only because he doesn't even like it. That no one else wants to be. You know, it's an area that's 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 easy for anyone to do. But I, I, what I want to ask you is, I, I mean, did you have to put a lot of thought? Did you begin first thinking Bloom meets Netanyahu, the great literary figure, meets the great sort of um, Kazabom writing his history of all mythologies? But did you did you plan at first to, to try and recreate Harl Bloom in fiction? No, I mean not 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 at all. I mean because I I, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't have been able to do it. Um, it you know Harold was truly uh, I, I think I was too close to him to to see him at least a few years after his death as a person that I could in some way manipulate on the page. And I, I seem to not have that particular pension or cruelty. I think what, what I wanted to do was to talk about um, some of Harold's ideas or to, to kind of put into play some of Harold's ideas. Um, I think that that something, you know, the anxiety of influence is a, a phrase that that is easy to use and throw around. It was a famous book, um, but it's mostly misunderstood. And with, when it is understood, it's fairly narrowly applied. Um, and, and Harold, I don't think, helped it along uh, so much by so deeply systemizing it. But it was essentially, in my horribly reduced idea of it, 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 it it's about how we consciously or unconsciously um, pervert the past in order to create autonomy for ourselves in the present. And in a literary context, which is, you know, the, how Harold was bringing it up, it was you know, you, you you come up as a reader and you have all of these influences and you love them. I mean, this is why you become a writer, because you're intoxicated by all of this writing. And then at some point you feel that these people, these dead people whom you've never met, these strangers are strangulating you and you can't um, create freely. You can't be your own man or woman. You can't have this autonomy. And so there is a process then, again, conscious, unconscious, however you want to phrase it, you can go toward the Freudian, you can go toward the, you know, purely, uh, you know, Skinnerian and, 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 and trying to uh, uh, survive. 
uh, uh, approach, but you, you begin perverting um, their legacy. These people that you loved, you say, well, there was a problem here, or I'm willfully misreading them, or I'm maybe unwillingly misreading them in order to create a space that you yourself can create in. And, um, and I always uh, appreciated that, not just uh, as a literary uh, approach to literary criticism, but as an approach to history, because this seemed to me a very um, not just Jewish, but a very modern approach to history, which is we are co we're, we're constantly misunderstanding history, you know, uh, uh, purposefully, uh, accidentally, consciously, unconsciously in order so that we can live in the present. And um, and I needed to establish that the sort of Bloomian view of history before Netanyahu came on stage. And um, and I thought that instead of having a, a professor who would proclaim that, and who would be a person who would fight that on the barricades. I wanted a, a, a kind of a professor who had sort of what, what Harold in his unfortunate nomenclature would call a weak writer as opposed to a strong writer. A weak writer merely uh, uh, recapitulates his or her influences, whereas a strong writer is the one who perverts their influences or you know, misunderstands them. So I wanted to have a figure who had surrendered, who had given into assimilation, who, um, who had bought the whole 1950s um, Eisenhowerian American suburbs dick and who actually was happy and fulfilled in that. And, um, and someone who didn't understand that all of these historical pressures that he was sort of repressing or putting to the side were going to have their revenge at some point. Could you read us a, a bit that would give us a sense of this character who, who is eventually going to host the Nehenyahus? Sure. From the beginning, we'll, we'll do a little, we'll do a little bit here. So this is from the beginning of, of the book. My name is Ruben Blum, and I'm N, yes, N historian. Soon enough, though, I guess I'll be historical, by which I mean I'll die and become history myself, in a rare type of transformation traditionally reserved for the purer scholars. Lawyers die and don't become the law. Doctors die and don't turn into medicine, but biology and chemistry professors pass away and decompose into biology and chemistry. They mineralize into geology. They disperse into their science just as surely as mathematicians become statistics. The same process holds true for us historians. In my experience, we're the only ones in the humanities for him, for whom this holds true. The only ones who become what we study. We age, we yellow, we go wrinkled and brittle along with our materials until our lives subside into the past to become the very substance of time. Or maybe that's just the Jew in me talking. Boys believe in the word becoming flesh, but Jews believe in the flesh becoming word a more natural, rational incarnation. By way of further introduction, I will now quote a remark made to me by the nameless then president of the American Historical Association when I met him at a symposium back in my student days just after the Second World War. Ah, he said, limply pressing my hand. Blum, did you say? A Jewish historian? Though the man surely intended this remark to wound me, it merely succeeded in bringing delight. And even now I find I can smile at the description. I appreciate its accidental imprecision and the way the double entendre can function as a type of psychological test. A Jewish historian, when you hear that, what do you think? What image springs to mind? The point is the epithet as applied is both correct and incorrect. I am a Jewish historian, but I am not 
in historian of the Jews, or I've never been one professionally. Instead, I'm an American historian, or I was. After half a century in the professorate, I was recently retired from my post as the Andrew William Mellon Memorial Professor of American Economic History at Corbin University in Corbindale, New York, in the occasionally rural, occasionally wild heart of Chautauqua County, just inland from Lake Erie, among the apple orchards and apiaries and dairies, or as dismissive, geographically illiterate New York City folk insist on calling it, upstate. I myself was once one of these city folk, and that though that old wisdom is false, that teachers learn more from their students than vice versa, I did manage to pick this up early on, never call Corbindale upstate. Though my initial focus was on the economics of the pre-American British colonial period, my reputation, such as it is, was made in the field of what's now referred to as taxation studies, and especially for my research into the history of tax policies influence on politics and political revolutions. To be sure, I never much enjoyed the field, but it was open to me. Rather, the field didn't exist until I discovered it, and like a bumbling Columbus, I only discovered it because it was there. By the time I got into academia, America was already crowded. Even American economic history was already crowded. And I've always had a decent head for numbers. Taking on the history of taxes got me out of the ghetto of colonial catalactics and eventually even out of America itself into the European city-states, feudal tax farming, church tithes, antiquities development of customs duties and trade tariffs, all the way back to the Rosetta Stone and even the Bible, both of which most people forget, are substantially just tax documents. What else is salient? I wish I knew, but do we ever know? I used to open certain of my classes by paraphrasing Twain, who himself was paraphrasing Franklin, who for his part was presumably plagiarizing Brighton's untold. Nothing can be said to be certain in this world, except death and taxes and the due dates of your papers. Very much. I have to mention Borges. I think it's a mistake in an interview never to mention Borges. So there's a, there's a lecture called The Argentine Writer in Tradition where he says that the Argentine writer, the South American writer, really um, has the whole canon at his or her disposal. Um, but that like Irish writers and Jewish writers, the job is to renew the tradition, put new energy in, to bring something to the table that hasn't been there before, that that business of being marginalized on the outside of things gives another perspective. And he mentions um, us and you, the Irish and the Jews, as being part of this dream that he has of South Americans. I think we could throw in gay people, too, if we wanted to. The, 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 what I want to ask you is, Considering Bloom's business about, um, you know, that, that you were talking about, about influence, we all have a problem, gay people as writers, Irish people, and perhaps Jewish people, in trying to write a novel about, say, our own world, and knowing each time we do it that, you know, the first gay experience, God, it's been written, Edmund White's done it, Andrew Holleran's done it, Jean Genet did it, you know, it's done, but in order to get my character placed, I have to do it, I can't not do it, I can't. And same with the Irish business of, say, nationalism or Catholicism. Mm -hmm. And perhaps the same with, with, with you in writing this book, that you have your attempt to assimilate. And what I'm watching now is you navigating this territory that, say, Philip Roth has dealt with. The whole mm -hmm. business of the, the, the sort of loser Jewish type who's smart, but who's like, just can't assimilate, like keep finding ways 
of being insulted by someone or other. And they do, I mean, they do genuinely insult him, but he's ready for it. Mm-hmm. But also then the real problems are going to be his parents and his daughter. I mean, the generation above and the generation below are going to cause him immense trouble. And you're mm-hmm. going to deal with this, really, you're going to deal with this comically. I mean, the arrival of the two sets of parents and the neurosis of the daughter. And I'm just wondering, the question really is, what extent are you thinking about earlier Jewish texts, Jewish writers, or your own experience, or that sense of being a sort of, that sense of being captured as a gay person, an Irish person, a Jewish person, a South American person, by that heritage and the efforts to escape and the ways in which you're trapped and netted by it? Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that, that, that. You don't know, that's, that, no, no, you don't know, don't, don't, you do know. Yeah. Well, right, I don't know is just a way to, cl- to clear my throat and then convince myself I might know. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I just, I, I, I think that my mind immediately went to the piles and piles of, of, of paper, which are, you know, on the other side of this computer, way in the back and piled in, in, in the closet, good place to be in the closet, right? of all of my attempts to write books not from that experience and not from that tradition and they're all bad they they don't i mean not that the books i have published are so good but they're better than me um deracinating myself for lack of a better word or for me trying to truly inhabit a character that um that i don't have some biographical or some uh, uh, similarities with in terms of in terms of uh, a canon or a tradition. I think that you know there are times when um, you know it feels stifling, and then you remind yourself that some of the great works of Jewish literature, just like some of the great works of Irish literature, are about the stiflingness of the tradition, and are very much about being being um, destroyed by the past and by the by the weight of its achievement. I think that you know it's a false choice in my mind of you know, could I throw all of this off and write a novel, for example, as a, an Irish gay person? And, the, you know, I, I couldn't. It wouldn't feel right. And even if I managed to fool someone, even if I managed to fool everyone, I don't think I could fool myself. Um, and, I, 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 and, and I don't believe in the writing about, you know, only what you know or what you've experienced. This is not one of these identity arguments. I think this is kind of one of the deeper identity arguments of that, you know, there's a music that underlies um, this language that that I'm writing in, which is a non-Jewish language, you know. Um, there is a inhabitation of this uh, tradition that I have, in a very Bloomian sense, you know, consciously and unconsciously perverted in order to make space for myself. I've decided what I've defined as this tradition to some degree, and I've decided to ignore an enormous amount. I mean, I, I always think when I'm asked this question, especially when I think back to the way I was raised, that if I was really paying attention to the Jewish tradition, I would never write novels to begin with. You know, I would be, I would be celibate, uh, or not celibate, I would be, what's the other word? Monogamous, sorry. I always confuse the two. Oh, there is, I would be, um, there yeah. is an odd difference there, odd, right, oddly right. enough. Right, right, right. I would be, I would, I would be a, a, a father of, of, of multiple children and I would wear a yarmulke and I would never read uh, this trash. You know, I would only read things written by God. I would, you know, eat, you know, three warm meals a day and I would be cherished by my community. Instead, 
you know, the idea that I'm following in my tradition, it's like, no, because, you know, because the real Jews who, when they have their COVID era readings, readings, do it in public, uh, uh, in the same closed room three times a day without masks. Um, you know, they, they don't, uh, 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 they read better books or different books. And so, you know, I, I, I'm also very cognizant of the idea of that being a tradition to be something very different from what the tradition is known as. Yeah, I suppose the question is, is really as well, this is a comic novel. Mm. Maybe right. say that and see, and see what you'll say, you'll say in which, I mean, this, mm-hmm. this is a very, very funny book in which the lead character, it's a very European book in which the lead character is, is a sort of himself, a sort of fraud. He feels a fraud. Mm. And his whole world is, is, he's under pressure all the time, as I say, mm. from his parents and from his from daughter. And that he in the middle is sort of uh, like uh, really one, one of those great, like one of those great figures from, from the central European comic tradition of being mm. a sort of king, king with no clothes, a Pinocchio, all, all those, all those figures. But he's, but he's also from a Jewish tradition. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I thought a lot about, you know, to be very about, about the comic aspect. I think it was, um, it, it was sort of rage at where comedy has gone. Um, I, uh, especially what, what, what people maybe would call a Jewish inflected comedy of, of, you know, Larry David, Seinfeld, you know, this, the, the, these kind of updatings of this, if we're still allowed to mention the, 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 the words Woody Allen of this, you know, Schlemiel tradition. And, and truthfully, I've always, you know, I've always regarded that type of humor as a, um, as to be, to be very unfunny and to be very pretentious as a heuristic. Right. This, this sort of humor was a way to make some other thing happen, was a way to 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 get people to think about things differently and to to get them to look into places that they wouldn't ordinarily look. It was the sugar that that made the medicine go down. Right. And and um, and then to see kind of where it is gone in a very sitcom uh, or, or web video way. Right. I, I wanted to write a book that sort of looked at the beginnings of this um, of 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 the media, the mediation of this tradition, the mediation of this tradition. So, you know, this book is set 1959, 1960. Uh, the acquisition of a television set of a, especially the earliest model color television set is really at the heart of it. The subtitle has the word episode in it. They talk about. Uh, 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 all uh, the chapters are structured in this almost um, sitcom way. And, and I was actually, I was interested in writing something that, that both had those, that elements of the sitcom where everything kind of ended on a, you know, on a laugh and it, and it had that, that, that lightness to it, but really its purpose was something very grim. And, uh, and it wasn't trying to, it wasn't trying to kind of get you through a half hour or get you between blocks of commercials. It was trying to get you um, to, to really think about what sort of histories uh, were at play here and what sort of histories were fighting, right? That the antagonisms that gave rise to this humor were actually antagonisms that resulted in, in murders historically. So, so yeah, I, 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 was, I was trying to, 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 to also maybe, maybe in some way write something of an, of an essay on, on uh, what's the phrase? Jewish media. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're also dealing with something very important in geopolitics, um, which, um, I mean, in Ulysses, for example, there's a moment um, in Barney Kiernan's pub where 
it's whispered that Leopold Bloom, because his father was actually Hungarian, had given the idea of Sinn Féin um, to the Irish, um, to the to the Irish nationalists. Um, and the word Sinn Féin had actually come from Leopold Bloom. This, this every man, this little man in a pub, was the, he was the fellow. He's the fellow who started it. And similarly with this book where, you know, it, it said, it was said when Benzan Netanyahu um, died that he was the one who had first thought of the idea of the Jewish American lobby. Mm-hmm. But even though this is not necessarily true, it was the myth around him that he had seen what could be done from America for Israel and that he had brought his children up as partly Americans and wholly Israelis. Mm-hmm. And, that, and, and that that nexus, which of course has, has been immensely troublesome, um, mm-hmm. that, that is actually embodied in the arrival of these feral figures. Um, stay with your hero. He, they think, first of all, that it's only going to be one man and his wife. And as the wife says, I, oh my God, I didn't know where we're going to be, you know, um, so surprised by these three and these three children. Now, I want you to tell us, um, what became these three boys that get out of this car and throw snowballs at each other and won't take off their shoes and behave fearily and have the same funny sheepskin coats? These boys, who do they become? There's Jonathan, there's mm-hmm. Benjamin, it's called Bibi, and then there's the other one. Who is yeah. to the three? Um, I, the, the, the eldest, uh, Jonathan, Yonatan Netanyahu was a, um, is, um, one of Israel's true kind of national heroes and martyrs. Um, one of the most famous and iconic, um, people, uh, uh, in the state. Um, he was a, you know, decorated soldier commando, um, who, uh, uh, fought, uh, with, with real heroism in, in, let's say Israel's existential wars and two of them. And, uh, 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 and in 67 and then later in the Yom Kippur, in the Yom Kippur War. And then in, in 1976, actually July 4th, 1976, the American Bicentennial, he was, um, sent as the team to, uh, uh, to Antebi to, uh, free the, uh, hostages who had been taken, um, and, and flown to Antebi by a sort of East German and, um, uh, Palestinian, um, uh, uh, terrorist group. And, um, and he was the, um, sole casualty of that operation, which was successful of the raid on Antebi, of which many bad television movies have been made. Um, uh, dying, dying very young. Um, and, uh, uh, Bibi Netanyahu, um, you know, uh, uh, the longest serving prime minister in the history of his state. And, uh, in a way, a, a synecdoche for, 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 um, for modern Israel. And certainly someone who, um, uh, uh, has been, uh, has changed the map of, of what we still kind of ridiculously call the Middle East, uh, uh, probably more than, 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 than any leader of the last half century. And, uh, and, and Ido Netanyahu, the youngest who became a, uh, radiologist in upstate New York, stuck around and, uh, uh, and also uh, a playwright whose plays are mostly produced in, countries that want to get preferential trade deals with Israel. So if you want to see his new play, you have to go to Azerbaijan or something. And, uh, and, and there you can see it. But, 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 but the, you know, Ido and, and Bibi have been very, um, adamant sort of about, uh, uh, about creating this, this, uh, 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 myth around their father, who, yes, was the, the kind of, in, in their mind, became the father of 
of America-Israel relations when 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 he died, when Benzio Netanyahu died at this you know insane age of a hundred and something. You know he's eulogized in in front of uh, 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 he's eulogized in front of Congress. He's he's also eulogized in front of meetings of, of American Jewish leaders by John Boehner, who was then the Speaker of the House as the father of America-Israel relations. And and you know his works are. Uh, uh, because of, of Bibi Netanyahu's, uh, uh, you know, influence and push, they're cataloged in the Israel Museum among its, you know, priceless treasures to be protected in case of nuclear attack, along with the work of like Maimonides and Kafka, you know, uh, uh, daddy's papers will be safe. So, daddy, could you read us just a small bit of, about the arrival of the Netanyahu's um, in this, sure. um, into this sort of quiet household? Sure. So this is right when they first arrive. Um, I think all you have to know is that is that Reuben Blum's uh, wife is named Edith and uh, uh, and Netanyahu, Benzio Netanyahu. When I say Netanyahu in this, I mean Benzio Netanyahu, the father. Um, his wife is named uh, Tzila. Tzila handed uh, uh, her and her husband's footwear to Edith, who went around collecting the boys. As each of them handed his pair of shoes over, Tzila named them, the eldest Jonathan the middle Benjamin, the youngest Ido. And Edith said, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Benjamin. Thank you, kiddo. And Silo said, Ido. And Edith said, kiddo. And the older boys giggled and whatever Hebrew they spat at the family's runt, it ended with kiddo. As Edith set their shoes down to dry on the mat, Sila gave their ages as 13, 10, and seven years old, respectively. And I remember noting that spacing and thinking that was just about the only disciplined and orderly thing about them about these yahoos, which is what immediately how I began referring to them in my head, these uncouth and rowdy yahoos who charged into our home and snowed up our floors and were now upright again and wandering the den like they were casing it for a burglary. Jonathan and Benjamin making an inspection of the mantle, examining its Mayflower and Speedwell ships and bottles, manhandling the tin wind-up toys of Hamilton and Burr, and overloading the pans of the antique pewter balance scales with weights that kept clattering. Edo was between their legs, poking at the enderons and digging in the hearth, and then rubbing at his face and smearing it with the hearth's ashes. Reuben, Edith said, we're going to need some extra chairs. Ground control to Reuben Blum, you're going to need to bring a few in from the dining room. Dilla, perhaps misconstruing, said to the boys something that must have meant sit down, and they went scrambling for perches, Jonathan and Benjamin taking the delicate shaker chairs facing the hide-a-bed couch before Edith or I could stop them. Edo, who was chairless, tried to get up on Jonathan's lap but was pushed off, and then tried to get up on Benjamin's lap but was pushed off from there too in an alarming shaking of shaker joinery and basket-weaved seats. And Ido, who tumbled to the floor dangerously close to the Chippendale tray table, crawled off crying to wipe his wet black face on a flank of the couch and nestle between his parents. I went to the dining room, brought back two of the table's sturdy aluminum frame chairs and positioned them at the gathering's fringes and sat in one and stared at the other and tried to think of the politest way to get the older boys to switch seats with me. I put together a bit of a smorgasbord, Edith said, a lot of savories, but I guess I should get some treats together for the kitties. Dila didn't respond. She just kept stroking the head of the bawling black-faced boy. So Edith tried again. Would you mind if I served your boys some C-O-O-K-I-E-S? 
Sheila, confused, repeated the spelling C-O-O-K, but Jonathan interrupted his mother, cookies. She's spelling cookies. He said to Edith, we speak English. Benjamin said, we're not idiots. And what about him then, Edith said to Edo. What about you? Edo, Jonathan said, he's an idiot. Right, Idy? Am I right, Idy? Are you an idiot who doesn't speak English? Edo, his voice thick with sniveling, reached for his mother and said, cookies. Sheila hoisted Edo and smelled him and then laid him atop the tray table and without laying a towel proceeded to pull down his pants and peel off his diaper. The boys can eat anything, she said, as, as if she were addressing the mess. Really, he doesn't need these pampers anymore except at night and whenever we have a long car trip. Edith, shutting her eyes, disappeared into the kitchen. As Sheila dug into her bag for a roll of toilet paper and wiped Edo, I asked, Ben, John, you want to switch seats with me? But Benjamin was leaning over his younger brother's ashy nakedness and flicking at his penis. Sheila slapped his hand away and Edo howled. Chocolate chip poop cookies, Benjamin said, pointing into the diaper. Chocolate chip brownie fudge poop cookies. It's not poop, Sheila informed me. It's pee-pee, pish, urine, Jonathan said, and picked a petal off a poinsettia. And who is this? Netanyahu asked pointing at the side table's display of family portraits from Sears and picking one up and examining it. Is this your daughter? Judy, Judy, I said. Judith. Yehudit, he said. She's in school all day, high school, I said. I'm afraid you'll miss her. Benzion said, Netanyahu said, that's the Hebrew name, Yehudit, whose book is accepted by the Goyim but excluded from the Jewish canon for reasons of prudery. Yehudit, the heroic Jewish woman pretends to seduce the Assyrian general Holofernes, buys him with food and drink until he's in a stupor, and then she takes a knife and slices off his head. She's named after Edith's grandmother, I said, the wife of a grain merchant from Trier who became a zipper merchant on 34th Street. Netanyahu replaced the photograph on the side table, propping Judy, Edith, and I against the lamp upside down. Edo was a prophet, Netanyahu said, who wrote books we know existed but now are lost. And Jonathan is Yonatan, and Benjamin is Benjamin, those you surely know from the canonical Bible. Dilla handed her husband the balled-up diaper, but he didn't take it. He just said, Yoni, Bibi, Idi. I hope I don't regret having brought them along. Dilla dropped the diaper in his lap and said something in Hebrew, something needling. And as she went on, his gaze dropped lower to the hole in his wet webbed sock and his jutting toe, which he wiggled the louder she got until he stamped his foot and blurted, English, speak English. Dilla said, I assume to me, I, I regret already that we came with him. Her English was choppier than his, more limited, but with a better accent, which I heard as Midwestern with a guttural Levantine tinge. The boys were supposed to stay with our woman, she said. Our woman who stays with them? The babysitter, Netanyahu said. The babysitter. The babysitter canceled because of a fire. She had a flood in her house from pipes that are freezed, Dilla said. I thought it was a fire, Netanyahu said. It was a flood from pipes that are freezed and a fire. How can you have both a flood and a fire? Wouldn't the fire put out the flood or thaw whatever's frozen? How would you know? I'm the one who talked to her. Netanyahu turned to me, home. As I was saying, it was an emergency. The babysitter couldn't stay with the boys, and Sila didn't want to be alone with them. Sila is right here, Sila said. Sila is right here in front of you. And no, Sila didn't want to stay home with the boys, and the boys didn't want to stay home with Sila. And then she lapsed into Hebrew, directed it to and then came back to English to say, who would want to stay at home with a mother who forgets her son's new underwear? 
Isn't there a pair in the car, Netanyahu said, in the glove box? And Jonathan said, I can get it. And Benjamin said, I go get it with you. No, Tzila said. And she ripped off a square of toilet paper and wetted it in her mouth and stuck it to the tip of Ido's penis. That should be enough for now. And pulled up his pants and picked him up and set him back standing in front of her between the couch and the tray table and poked him in the stomach, sing-songing in a heliumated, tight voice. We all wanted to come with your father. We just can't get enough of him. The moment your father leaves the house, everything collapses. She picked up Ido's sweater and the identical sweater beneath it and the undershirt beneath that and leaned down and Bronx cheered into his belly until his howling turned into hysterical giggles. What would we do without him? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. What would we do without your father? <laughs> I'm the same way, I said, to placate. Without Edith, I'd fall apart. <laughs> that's... Um... I mean, that's, that's really wonderful. It's, it's terribly disrespectful. I, I have a feeling you're not going to be on the Christmas card list of the wider Netanyahu, um, family and perhaps a lot of their supporters. I, you know, but the bit that got me going, which I just want to, um, it's, it's just two sentences really. Um, as the kids, this is the Netanyahu's fire drilled around the car in a ride of snowballs thrown and dodged. One of the adults raised a hooded head to the sky and screamed out in that language that in my youth had been spoken by God. Now that got me going, wow. Because of course we all think of Hebrew, modern Hebrew as being the great miracle, you know, how it was revived. But of course for someone who was a scholar who had studied the language and, and, and had reverence for the language, you're mm-hmm. getting used by a group of feral children and their mm-hmm. out of control parents, like brought it down to a level. So I just, just, I, I thought that was a, I mean, besides the disrespect you pay to, um, really your betters, if you don't mind me saying so, you know, that he has been elected five times, which is more than you have, mm-hmm. and that he is widely respected. I'm not sure exactly where, but by the people who vote for him and Donald Trump respected him. Um, but the, the book really is, um, you know, antagonistic and, and, um, iconoclastic and, um, one way of getting uh, the Netanyahu's and really making tremendous fun of them, which I have to say, I, I enjoyed tremendously. You know, the more I realized the amount of mischief involved, the happier I grew. Thank you. Was that a misreading? Did I, was that wrong of me? I mean, for me, I, I took it as very, um, no, if anyone likes anything, then they're not wrong, right? <laughs> but it's 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 this it's this. Uh, uh, I mean, you know, one of my one of my feelings about it was, you know, um, during the most consequential decade of 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 certainly modern Jewish history, right? The 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 forties, um, and 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 the second most, let's say, the fifties. Um, you know, Benzion Netanyahu is not really in. Um, He's not in Europe being slaughtered, and he's not in Palestine founding a state. He's in um, New York and uh, suburban Philadelphia. And as there was this resentment that I felt from him that I kind of understood uh, from my own feelings of being born just over the Delaware River from uh, from where, you know, uh, the Netanyahu's are, are living. And, then, and and where the, the children grew up. Um, and in a way, I, I felt that freedom to be antagonistic because, you know, I grew up in Atlantic City, New Jersey, where it was Philadelphia Jews who always parked in our driveway when they came down to the beach. 
you know so it it, it was a question really of 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 um of treating uh, the Netanyahu's as they were, as 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 really, you know, the neighbors, uh, uh, our neighbors who grew up in the exact same way, who went to the same schools uh, 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 my parents did, right? And yeah. uh, uh, and so it 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 was to me very. Um, it was important to keep that familiarity because that familiarity really is a mark of their essential Americanness, and uh, and and I think that that really needs to be. I mean, his his I mean, it, I, it might be a cliche in, in, in foreign policy circles and politics circles, but I mean, he is a very American politician. It's not just his his the way he speaks English, where, you know, occasionally he can sound like uh, uh, Chris Matthews with a Philly accent. You know, he 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 is deeply American and a student uh, uh, of America, but a child of America. And so I, I felt I felt that license then to yeah. um to 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 uh, uh to treat him as I would treat anyone else from the city of Philadelphia but you know of course not to their faces because everyone from Philadelphia in person is terrifying it's just in books if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers with Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC your lip look whether it's subtle or bold can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today that's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There are questions coming in. One of the interesting questions here is you're talking about your protagonist as being, you know, heir to the unique history for, for you know, Eisenhower era materialism. And the question then is, to what extent do you think that that, that is a fair summary of the Jewish story in America more generally? I, I don't know if you can see the question there. Yeah, yeah, I can. Uh, so I think that's a fair, I mean, of some people's, absolutely. I mean, I think it, I think it really depends on where you're politically oriented in the present. I mean, I think that is one of the, you know, again, the Bloomian points here about, um, you know, the, the idea of a, of a, of a misreading of the past, um, in order to create a space for the present. I think that there's this unique history of Eisenhower era materialism to which, you know, anyone who had f family in the country maybe could be heir. But I certainly, uh, 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 a large part of this book also really treats, 
uh, what it means to sort of be a child of the McCarthy era, and uh, uh, and and what this uh, uh, what the American left was kind of put through during the same period. And so so you know there's certainly elements of 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 uh, 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 people I know and elements of my own family, uh, red diaper elements, you know, to stay on the diaper theme from earlier, that that um, that that have a far different view of 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 um, of the 50s than than um, than this kind of contented golden age. Um, and I think that that in a way, the, the question that that really comes into play in this book um, is is really about historiography. And so the secret theme of this book being who owns history, who owns the present. I mean, in, in, in many ways, and this is not something we've, we've touched on, and I'm kind of trying to shoehorn it into this question, is in a lot of ways, I wanted to write a book about um, campus politics, identity politics. I wanted to, you know, write a book about um, a, a country where, you know, we can talk about it was founded in 1619 as opposed to 1776. And and these, uh, you know, what it means to, you know, not who's right or who's wrong or what are the, you know, what are the truths behind each argument or what are the biases, you know, behind, you know, but behind behind certain arguments. It's really about what it means to live in an atmosphere of competing historiographies. And uh, and certainly this was, you know, in the book, it's it's trying to have these be embodied by America and Israel. Uh, it's having these embodied by people who have kind of retreated from life into the university and people who remain outside of it. But these these competing historiographies are really um, the, these are really uh, 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 diagnoses of our present conditions. And um, and when we try to revise the past, we're we're essentially hoping for a different uh, a present. And it sounds like a bromide. It sounds cliche, but but. But I was that's why I didn't write that directly in the book. I was trying to sort of embody it. Yeah. Um, Darren Lucky has a question for you, Josh. Um, was Pnin at all an influence on the book? I mean, I love Pnin. I mean, Nabokov is such an influence on everything. Um, an influence on the book. I sure. Sure. I mean, I knew I couldn't have someone be late for a lecture. You know, I mean, you know, I, I, I knew I couldn't, you know, kind of tell those same jokes. I mean, I, I, I said to myself while I was writing this, because I could, it was kind of in the middle of another book. And I had just decided I was going to do this after Harold passed away. And uh, I said to myself every morning, you know, I'm doing the two dumbest things I can imagine. I'm doing the two dumbest. Absolutely. I'm writing a campus novel. And I'm writing a historical novel. In fact, I'm writing a historical campus novel. Like I, if someone told me I would be doing this, it's it I mean it would like those things are as foreign to me as like uh, as like lacrosse or or table manners. And so and so I I I um so all of these campus novels uh uh uh, uh were were you know uh, exhibition um, um Mary McCarthy's you know campus novel uh uh Giles campus novel Nabokov's uh I mean you know I I used to joke that um if there was ever going to be a a a Yiddish writers retreat in the Catskills they should call it David Lodge and uh so even David Lodge was 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 important to me and and uh uh, uh but 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 Penin you know um Penin is is has this quiet sort of indomitable strength that 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 is that is masked by this you know kind of classic 
Central European or, you know, or, or Russian ineptitude and, and kind of holy foolism. Whereas Netanyahu is, a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is seething. You mentioned there that you were writing something else and you stopped and you very unwisely began this um, very unwise book. Um, I, I really have that sense from it that it was written quickly in stolen time with immense relish, but you mm. suddenly found that you could work, uh, you probably could do quite a lot of work every day because it was a sense of your fluency, of mm. your actually relishing the fact that you were mixing quite serious matters, the whole idea of the connection between uh, America and Israel. And as you say, the second subject, the whole change in the campus between what date America started and who who told the story and who got tenure and who didn't. Those two mm. serious things against this actual phrase by phrase, and it's apparent in the two bits you've read, of actually really, really enjoying the making of the sentences and, and that coming across as, as, as what I was talking about at the beginning, that sense of pure pleasure you feel in reading this book, the sheer relish that you take in phrases and in a further joke put in, a further outrage committed by someone or other. That, that all, all of that seems to me the feeling of a writer in snatch time suddenly finding a gold mine. Yeah, I was I was lucky. I mean, I've 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 done worse things with my left hand. You know, God knows. So so it it, it does feel like. Uh, uh, but, you know, I mean, certain things have felt like that, I think, for every book I've done where and I think every writer feels this way. I mean, you tell me where where, you know, there's you know that there's a section or a scene that just kind of came. And uh, com- compared to the rest of the book. And I, I think that, you know, for this one, it was the first time that I've ever um, taken an anecdote like this and and um, and had the sort of luxury of thinking about it for a while in my head and, and, and asking myself, why is this ridiculous story of a of a of a. Uh, a campus visit that ends in a, to not spoil anything, you know, somewhat of a sexual escapade. You know, why, why is this, why is this sticking with me? What is the, 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 the resonance of this? And, um, and then once I realized that I could be mean and not just that, but that I could, um, canalize all of these emotions that I'd been having about Trump. And about sort of Trump's own influence on the culture over four years into something without having to use the word Trump. That to me was, um, you know, that to me was, uh, was liberating. It wasn't, it was in a way a, uh, a lip, you know, what, what does George Perec call it? You know, a lipogram, right? Where you, 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 you have something missing. And in a way, you know, uh, what was missing from this was, was, so much of this is a reaction to a lot of the things stirred up in American life by the Trump years. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, I did feel at certain moments that the idea of this man and his sons arriving to create chaos in this place, mm-hmm. that it was impossible not to feel that you had Eric and Donald Jr. coming out of the back of the car, you know, right. with, with their father, that, 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 that sense of, I suppose that sense of the political leader as a, as thug, mm-hmm. and and I was needing to see that as so of what that would have been like in in a time, you know, in, in another context. This the sense of this sort of thuggish family arriving. Yeah, and it's and it's very much like a it's very much a a a this story about fathers, and you know, and so much of the sort of um, di- you know, 
psychoanalysis of of Trump was is about this sort of you know father builder figure, and and living up to, and and I was thinking about um, uh, that in terms of Netanyahu as well, and these uh, uh, and living up to these legacies and being raised by fathers who kind of could never approve and nothing was ever enough and they were absent in a certain way, and um, and I, I think one of the, the the real elements that 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 attracted me to this was that um was this idea of you know a sort of return of the repressed right this you know Benzil Netanyahu was someone who was yeah. you know really thrown out of Israeli society just like you know the revisionists as a whole revisionist Zionism was thrown out of Israeli society and 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 there is a mythic element to this of you know the man who is exiled his son returns to the city and becomes king right i mean it it has this 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 mythic or this fabular outline yeah. That um, that that almost shocked me when I realized that oh I'm I've lived through that right yeah. I mean I, I you know this mythic outline is something that is that has taken me in too and and I wanted to 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 write it because noting the horribly embarrassing details behind the myth right the the myth of the the son who comes back to revenge the father is all made up of these ugly little petty details of committee bullshit and of gossip. And rumor and and cutting people down over faculty dinners and 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 these you know uh, what what we would call microaggressions today, right? And 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 that relationship between the the way that the, the this actual process played out and the mythic outlines it satisfies um, really uh, felt uh, it felt liberating to discover them and it felt freeing to to explore them. And there's a question from Peter Strauss. Hi, Peter. Um, what are the comic novels you love which are under-recognized? Oh, under-recognized comedy. That's, that's so, it's so, you never know what, what, what other people find funny, right? I mean, I, I think uh, for this book, I was, I was thinking a lot about, um, there, there is Svevo. I think is is you know in the confessions of Zeno is is, is that, but I mean it's not under recognized. I think uh, 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 for me it wasn't necessarily uh, um, novels that would be under recognized so much as it is um, certain jokes and certain uh, 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 that I was thinking of in certain comedians that I was that I was that I was thinking of. I I uh, 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 I found a, a, a guy who had transcribed. Um, about 10 or 12 hours of um of Henny Yugman in a PDF that was sort of interesting and liberating for me but if i have to kind of go back to to some of the the, spell, the could, you earliest, out, could you spell that name out for us just in case there's anyone here who Henny Yugman young man uh, y o u n g m a n he's the, you know the king of the the one liners the the sort of take my wife please guy um and uh, I was, you know, but 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 in terms of in terms of in terms of novels, I think that the what was most interesting to me, I think, with this book was actually looking at the disappearance of humor from, let's say, the Jewish novel in some of the books that came up around uh, uh, Benzio Netanyahu's contemporaries. I think if you kind of look at, you know, the early Israeli, I mean, the kind of you know, mandate era uh, uh, writing in Hebrew, 
and you look at uh, some of the, the, the novels kind of produced by Benzio Netanyahu's contemporaries, um, Yizhar uh, uh, probably being the most, you know, uh, famous example, um, you, you really, in a way, you don't, I don't recognize it as, or many people wouldn't recognize it as what we would refer to as Jewish literature in Anglo, in the Anglo-American world. It was something that was a lot closer to this um, Russian, almost social realism kind of thing with a, you know, that, that uh, uh, on one hand or on the other hand, a sort of intoxicated and almost humorless modernism, right? And, um, and, and so uh, uh, that was the reading that I hadn't done uh, so fully, um, that I hadn't fully um, uh, uh, explored that I, I, that I kind of went after in, in, in reading for this book. But otherwise, uh, you know, Stanley Elkin, Wallace Markfield, Roth, um, and, uh, 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 Bello, and, um, you know, the standards. And um, just, just, just occurring to me that, that, that your central protagonist is one of those figures who actually really matters, I think, in Jewish history in America, where, in, for example, someone like Lionel Trilling, People don't mm-hmm. talk all the time about him being the only Jewish professor in the English department. You know that that, that, that what Lionel Trilling. You know, yeah. you know, was, was that the, the, these figures, Harold Bloom, and another example, who sort of mm-hmm. stood out with, within that that by sheer um, talent, by sheer right. just being, they had managed to push through a door mm-hmm. that was effectively closed to their colleagues, mm-hmm. and then once inside. They're in this strange position of sort of standing alone, having having made it, but but somehow when they looked in the mirror, there was no one else there. You know? And that being a very interesting, this invisibility, this mixture of having to be mm-hmm. timid and of having made it, which you deal right. with in, in your novel, being a very powerful image. And also, and also, a, a, a sort of you know collective amnesia uh, among, um, uh, you know, maybe among his peers, but 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 certainly an ignorance among then, you know, preceding generations. You have this idea that that Harold Bloom, who is, you know, Mr. Western canon, all in caps and, you know, and, you know, in many ways, you know, the defender of the faith. Right. And uh, uh, expert on romanticism. Right. Um, the, the idea that this person who up, upholds the um, the values of the canon is, you know, is the son of Yiddish speaking garment workers from Odessa. But the idea that that he kind of ends as, you know, establishment. In many people's imaginations, is is really testament to how 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 quickly um, memories pass and, and 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 realities change in American life, and um, and I, I also kind of wanted to uh, uh, to incorporate that element into the book. This idea of you know one can you know you know maybe fool uh, uh, one's 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 colleagues or some of one's colleagues. You know it's harder to fool yourself. Uh, but the easiest thing is 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 to fool the future, right? Because because uh, uh, they 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 there is a a real paucity of of experience. And truthfully, Harold, who never produced really a memoir about uh, uh, you know say a formal memoir, never w- wrote anything about how it felt um, in that period. Right. Um, well, we're, we're finishing up. Just want to say that um, look. Um, I've, I've got immense pleasure from this book. I think it's a book that everyone's going to, I think this book's really going to change your life because everywhere you go, people are going to be telling you jokes from your own book. And, um, you know, it's really, it's really going to make your life a misery, this book. 
But it's, but I mean, it is, it is an absolutely wonderful book. I, I, I really got a wonderful day in the middle of um, lockdown with it. And it's absolutely wonderful to talk to you. And um, thank you very much, Joshua Cohen, called the Nehemiahs. We're talking from, from the London Review book, Bookshop. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.